we're going to be looking at a passage of scripture from the letter of Paul, the missionary, to a church in what is modern-day Turkey, on the western end of uh, modern-day Turkey, a place called Ephesus. All right, we've been walking for a number of weeks, actually, uh, through uh, much of the year, uh, through this letter, and we're now in Ephesians chapter 6. So you can find the passage in your handout or also presumably on your phone, or perhaps, just maybe, in an actual paper Bible that you brought today. Before we read that passage, though, I'd like to pray um, and uh, try to help us position our hearts in uh, submission to God and His Word. Uh, Oh Lord, we come to you again. Uh, wanting to open ourselves to your teaching. We want to hear from you, Lord. Um, I admit, this is a tough passage to hear from you in. And uh, so I, I, even myself, I want to ask you, what what do you want to say to us (laughs) today? Um, Teach us, Lord, um, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's read the passage. It says, Slaves, obey your human masters with fear and trembling, in the sincerity of your heart, as you would Christ. Don't work only while being watched as people-pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing God's will from your heart. Serve with a good attitude as to the Lord and not to people, knowing that whatever good each one does, slave or free, he will receive this back from the Lord. And masters, treat your slaves the same way, without threatening them, because you know that both their master And yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. I'm going to read that one more time. Slaves, obey your human masters with fear and trembling, in the sincerity of your heart, as you would Christ. Don't work while being watched as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing God's will from your heart. Serve with a good attitude, as to the Lord and not to people knowing that whatever good each one does, slave or free, he will receive this back from the Lord. And masters, treat your slaves the same way, without threatening them, because you know that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. All right, so three facts. Number one, in the early Christian communities of the New Testament era, like the Christian community that Paul is writing to here, there were both slaves and slaveholders, people who owned slaves. Number two, Paul writes into this social reality and does not, at least outright, seek to abolish it. Number three, and contextualizing this for our circumstances, Uh, Pro-slavery 
advocates in the United States in the 19th century looked to passages like this one to defend the social practice of slavery. So for example, a guy named Richard Fuller, who was a pro-slavery advocate and Christian minister in the United States in 1844, wrote to another guy named Francis Wayland, who was a slavery abolitionist, concerning the proposition that slavery is sin, which Francis Slavery, sorry, Francis Wayland was proposing slavery is sin. Richard Fuller wrote, it appears to me that you must either abandon the Bible or make it, make it teach an expediency and a keeping back of truth, which it abhors, or modify your views. Richard Fuller said, the matter stands thus. The Bible did authorize some sort of slavery. So what do we do with this, right? This is um, obviously a problematic passage. <laughs> and so what we're going to wrestle with today, in part, is what do we do with those three facts? That slavery existed in these churches, the Bible does not outright seek to abolish it, and even contextualizing it for us, that people use these passages to support a system that I would say, and I think all of us would say today, was, a, uh, was an abhorrent institution, right? All right. So first thing I would like to do then is we've got to get some context. All right, let's think about the society that Paul is writing into here. And let's think about the reality of slavery in the society. Uh, this is important to do, actually, when talking about this passage, because one of the ways that people have tried to deal with the uncomfortable topic of slavery in the Bible in the past has been to compare slavery in the society of the ancient Mediterranean world in which this is written to slavery in the United States in the, 19, in the 19th century and say the two are so different um, and the Mediterranean world slavery was a sort of like much more benign and benevolent institution than the one in the 19th century that um, it makes sense that Paul and the Bible would not have felt so uncomfortable with it. Okay? So it's a kind of comparison that it's, uh, it's a less heinous institution than the one that, that we uh, experienced in our, in our past here. And um, I think I would say, having looked at the, at the data, yes, they are different. But no, uh, they are uh, not less, the, the one is not less heinous or abhorrent than the other. Okay. So, a few facts. Rome from about 200 BCE to 200 CE, I think can be classified as a slave society, which means that slavery was part and parcel of many, many aspects of the society, and in fact, the society was largely built on slave, slave labor. 
in Italy uh, itself, the, the center of the Roman Empire, around 35% of the population were slaves. Um, from the years 50 BCE to 100 CE, around five, sorry, 500,000 slaves were needed each year imported into Italy. This far eclipses the number of slaves imported into the United States and, um, uh, and other countries during the, um, the 19th century. Where did these slaves come from? Many of them came from wars, from Roman conquests and other places in the empire. And the peoples would be enslaved, sometimes to be sold, sometimes uh, given as booty to the soldiers. Uh, Josephus, for example, who is a Jewish historian, talks about how, um, now admittedly he was a known exaggerator, but he uh, talks about how 100,000 Jewish slaves were taken um, in the wake of the Roman conquest of Judea around 70 CE. Uh, we also have the birth, of course, the propagation, the internal propagation of slaves as slaves are born to slaves. And this, of course, was advantageous for slaveholders because it uh, grew people up in, in, a, in a situation in which they were socialized into slavery, right? They knew nothing else. Of course, there was trading for slaves across the empire, and there was also kidnapping and trafficking of slaves. Um, as in many slave societies, slave uh, lifestyle could vary depending on who was your master and their position in society, right? So a slave of the emperor uh, might become a rather important person in the empire, right? And have a relatively good lifestyle. But a slave working on an agricultural estate <clears throat> of a Roman villa in the countryside might live a terrible lifestyle, right? Um, coercive tactics were used by slaveholders. Um, not always, but commonly, right? Beating, uh, deprivation, prison, hard labor. Um, and the sources, the Roman sources particularly, um, make it clear that sexual exploitation was commonplace um, from, uh, of male and female slaves by at least male slaveholders. Now, one difference between the slavery of the American past and slavery in the Roman world was that manumission or the freeing of slaves was more common. Right? So, um, uh, a person might free a number of his slaves maybe write into his will that they're going to be freed at his death, or a person might come to an agreement with a, a slave to say, uh, you can buy your freedom by uh, remitting for me the cost of property loss that will incur uh, to my account. And another difference, of course, is that slavery in the ancient Mediterranean world was not race-based primarily. In other words, you wouldn't walk down the street and be able to tell from the color of a person's skin or something their position in the society, necessarily. In summary, though, slavery in the Roman world was extremely common and quite varied, but it remained a cruel and deplorable social institution in which 
persons were exploited for the gain of their masters and for the benefit of the free society at large. Right? And a lot of that information, sorry, I'm a, I'm a hopeless academic. I have to give you a footnote. A lot of that information comes from a book written by Keith Bradley called The Slave Society at Rome. Okay, footnote over. All right. All right, so now let's look at this text with this context in mind. Um, we have to understand, right, that now, now, now we understand that Paul is writing into a slave society in which slavery, it's like, it's like a fish in water, right? Slavery is part and parcel of life for Paul and for the, the people that he's writing to. And he does not seek to abolish slavery in his writing. Instead, he writes into the situation, into the actual lives of the people in these churches, and he calls them to act in a certain way. Now, I know I am biased in a certain way, but I, I have a foregone conclusion. I think that slavery is wrong, <laughs> right? Um, but even though I may be biased with that conclusion that I'm coming to this text with, I do think that there is a particular observation about the text that we can make that is quite striking to me. And that is that the social relationship of the slave and the master in this text is constantly in your face, relativized by the position of both slave and master as slaves of the heavenly master, Jesus. Okay? Paul pushes on this in almost every sentence of the passage. So I want us to look at this. He says, Slaves, obey your human masters with fear and trembling. All right. Do you see it immediately? Obey who? Your human masters. Not slaves obey your masters, but actually the, in, in the original language, the Greek that he writing, he's writing, he says, slaves obey your masters according to the flesh. All right? Now, if you look at other places that Paul uses the term according to the flesh in his writings, it is consistently used to describe an outward temporal circumstance in contrast to something that is real and lasting. In other words, Paul is immediately saying, yes, you have this relationship of a slave to a master, but you know what? That is an ephemeral relationship. It is circumstantial. It's part of your life in the society now, but it is not the ultimate reality. So, slaves, obey your masters according to the flesh. He says later, um, don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but of, as slaves of Christ, doing God's will from your heart. Now, that's, that's kind of interesting as well, isn't it? He is calling the slave to serve the master. But he does it in a way, actually, that undermines the master's authority. How so? Because who is the slave serving? 
not the master, the slave is serving God. Whose will is the, ser- the slave doing? The will of God, not the master. You see, this weakens, in some ways, the institution and the relationship societally between slave and master because it bypasses the slave holder claiming that the real owner of the slave is God. And the slave does not respond to the will of the master, but to the will of God. And who does the slave desire to please? God, not the master. Later, he says, knowing that whatever good each one does, slave or free, he will receive this back from the Lord. Did you catch that? Knowing that whatever good each one does, he will receive this back from the Lord. That is, the reward for doing good comes from God. So who in this passage, according to Paul, is the ultimate evaluator and judge of the slave? God, not the master. Again, right? Who gets to punish or reward this person for what they do? God, not the master. All right. So you can see already, don't you? Don't you see? In a really striking way, and you know, this this um, this directive to slaves is given in the context we've seen of what's called a household code that Paul gives, right? He talks to husbands and wives, he talks to parents and children, he talks now to slaves and masters, Uh, far more than the husbands, wives, parents, children texts, he pushes on the relationship and relativizes the relationship of slave and master here. Then he says at the end in verse 9, And masters, treat your slaves the same way. Literally, do the same to your slaves without threatening them because you know that both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no favoritism with him. Okay, I want to camp out here for a minute because this is really interesting, right? Why is this really interesting? First of all, what do you mean, do the same to your slaves? What do you think he means? Actually, turn to the person next to you and uh, see if you can answer that question. When he says, do the same to your slaves, do the same what? Do what that's the same? Talk, talk to someone next to you. I'm going to grab some water. <laughs> All right. 
Anyone want to raise your hand and throw out a throw out a guess, an option? I, I'm, it's like, all right, this became a classroom real, all of a sudden. Yes, Connor. Yeah. Serve with a good attitude. Okay. Yeah. So you think it goes back to that? Yeah. Any anyone else had another idea? Yeah. Keep in mind that Christ is also their master. Keep in mind that Christ is also their master. Yeah. Okay. Any la any last thought? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So maybe it has to do... Oh, yeah. Interesting. So all of... Yeah. None of you thought it meant masters obey your slaves, <laughs> which I agree with. I don't think it means that, even though it's kind of jarring when he says it, because it, that almost is the most natural thing that you would read, uh, just grammatically. Um, but it's like, it can't mean that, <laughs> right? Um, so I, you know, I tend my personal opinion, and I don't, I don't know the answer to this, but I, I think it probably makes sense, best sense to say yes, the same way that your slave relates to you with the knowledge that their real master is God, so also you relate to your slave with that same knowledge that their and your real master is, is God. It also says, stop your threatening, right? Without threatening them. So Paul here is pushing on the coercive tactics of slaveholders with slaves, right? So in this relationship that Paul accepts, the slave-master relationship, he says one thing that should not be part of that relationship is coercion, at least in the sense of getting your slave, exerting your will over your slave um, by threatening certain punishments, I suppose. Because this would constitute an implicit claim of ownership over the slave. Whereas you don't really own the slave. God does. Knowing, or because you know, that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Now, this last statement is probably the most striking of all. What does it mean that there's no favoritism with God, the master in heaven? It means that God doesn't view any person differently than any other person. Everyone is equal before God. There is no favoritism with him. Everyone, slave and master, no matter what your in-the-flesh ephemeral relationship might be in society, everyone is equally the slave of Christ. So, where have we gotten so far? Where we've gotten so far is that, yes, Paul acknowledges and in some ways accepts the social reality of slavery in his day, but in speaking into it, um, he does it in such a way that pushes on that reality. Pushing the slave and the master to understand that this is um, 
an ephemeral relationship that is relative to a real and lasting relationship, which is that they equally are slaves of God. And of course, this is actually borne out, this, this, this um, push that Paul gives is actually borne out in the rest of the New Testament writings of Paul. For example, right, uh, the book of Philemon. You read this book where uh, we have a runaway slave whose name is Onesimus, who uh, meets Paul and becomes a believer. Um, this slave goes back to his master Philemon with a letter from Paul, and Paul in that letter says, receive him back no longer as a slave, but as a brother, as a beloved brother. So again, it's the desire to... Um, help slaves and masters understand their equality before God. He also, of course, says famously in, um, in 1 Corinthians, every slave is God's free person, and every free person is God's slave. And, uh, and also, of course, in Galatians, there is neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. Okay, so we got that. <clears throat> yes, Brian, but. <laughs> Paul still does not seek to abolish slavery here. <laughs> right? He accepts it. Can we be okay with that? Well, and not only does he accept it, right? He even calls slaves to obey their masters. So this leads me to a conclusion about how God speaks to us through Scripture that I think is probably more evident with this issue than in any other issue in Scripture. This issue and this passage kind of leads me unavoidably to this conclusion about the way that God reveals himself um, in these texts. And that is that God reveals his will in context. and in history. And the will that he reveals in context is not always the same or identical with his ideal ultimate will for creation. Did you catch that? It's not always the same. He might say, this is what you should do, and it not be the thing that he ultimately wants to be the case in his creation. Now, that's, that's hard to get your mind around, right? There's a classic, like, there's probably no better example of this than the issue of divorce in the Old Testament and in Jesus' teaching on divorce. Okay? I'm going to read you a passage in which Jesus talks about divorce that will help us understand this contextualization of God's revelation. Okay, listen to this. This is from... Matthew 19. The Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? That is according to Jewish Torah. He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? 
and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's a quote from Genesis. So, Jesus says, they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why? Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? You tra- you're tracking the, the conversation here? He says, they said, what about divorce? He's like, God created them and he told them to come together and so they shouldn't separate. And they're like, so why in the law of Moses, like that was revelation from God, why does it allow for divorce? Now listen to Jesus' answer. He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. What's the implication? That God um, created the world a certain way and desires the world to be a certain way. That is, without divorce. But people are sinful. And they create circumstances that are less than the ideal that he desires for his creation. And so sometimes God speaks into the sinful circumstances that they create to reveal a desire or a will in that circumstance that is less than ideal, but maybe better than what they would have made it to be. Right? So he gives protections and instructions for divorce, not because he wants there to be divorce, but because people are messed up. And so maybe we can say the same thing happens with the institution of slavery in the New Testament. Again, slavery, uh, the idea of the abolition of slavery was not something that was even on people's minds in the society, right? It was, it was the air that they breathed. And though it was a sinful institution that was not God's ideal for creation, God spoke into that institution, both pushing on it, right, pushing on the realities of the relationship between slave and master and relativizing them in light of the realities of people's relationship to God. Um, And also uh, giving instructions for how they should live in the lives they actually had. Now, of course... um, question is, like, with this way of reading, right, because essentially what I'm doing is I'm saying, all right, yeah, he accepted slavery, Paul did, and scripture did in this instance, but that's not what God really wanted. The question is, how do we know when to do that with which passages, (laughs) right? Because you could be like, well, yeah, it says love your enemies, but that was then and this is now, (laughs) right? My context is different. (laughs) Um, And so I have some thoughts about how you might put a control on this kind of way of reading, but maybe those, we can talk about those at the discussion table, all right? Because this gets, we could go pretty far afield, okay?
Um, all right. So last point that I want to make. <clears throat> is there anything now, we, we, you know, we've kind of, what we've done is essentially kind of like apologetics, like we tried to figure out how does this work and all of that. But now we have to ask the question, is there anything we can actually positively learn from this? Um, there might be several things, but one thing that I would like to put out there, and I don't claim to know how this all works, and this is like a potentially, it's like, it's like playing with fire in certain ways. Like it's a little hard to know how to deal with. But I will say that in, in the New Testament, there is a common call for Christians to react to situations that are less than ideal, potentially situations even of oppression, with respectfulness, love, and even sometimes submission. Jesus, of course, leads the way here, right? Um, as it says in 1 Peter, Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him that is God who judges righteously. So Jesus, of course, is the paradigmatic example of someone suffering under oppression, unjust oppression. And yet the Bible says that he gave us an example when he did not retaliate, but uh, instead went to his death. And ultimately what? Overcame evil with good, right? His love and his death was the beginning of the revolution that would actually undo the oppressive power that overtook him. And of course, we see this in other places, right? Like Paul's injunction to submit to the governing authorities in a day when the governing authorities were corrupt, very corrupt. I mean, these are the governing authorities that were shipping in 500,000 slaves to the center of the empire, right? Of course, the danger is that these calls to not to fight back in, in, times, in, in positions of unjust treatment could be used in the hands of oppressors to become props for the system. And that has happened. So again, we're, I don't know fully how to do this, okay? And it also does not mean that we do not, we, do not, um, we do not ever resist. Like, Paul was sometimes like, hey, why are you whipping me? Right? You remember those stories? And, and, and he would push back sometimes. Um, and of course, Joseph, right, the, the, the slave in the Old Testament who uh, was unjustly put in slavery in Egypt, uh, you know, he resisted the advances of Potiphar's wife and, and so forth and so on, right? Yet the fact remains that Christians often overcome through meekness and death rather than by leading a cavalry charge. 
uh, Switchfoot song. <laughs> Love is a movement. Love is a revolution, right? Jesus subverted and overturned the pride of his Jewish opponents and the oppressive power of the Roman Empire, not by fighting it, but by letting it overcome him. I don't know what to do fully with, it, with all of that, but somehow that plays into this, and maybe that's something that we can learn. So in conclusion, I'm just going to resummarize where we got to, and we'll be done. Paul was not interested in the question of the morality of slavery. Slavery was the water he swam in. He was interested instead in how followers of Jesus should live the lives they actually had in a slaveholding society. So the question was not, in this case, how can you campaign for the ideal, but how should you live the life you've got? And so, guiding this congregation in that situation, he makes two big points. Number one, no slave is really owned by any master. They are owned by God. And masters are only masters in an ephemeral human sense. Slaves, therefore, render their service to God and not to their masters. Number two, slaves, slaveholders are slaves of God just like their slaves are. And there is no distinction between them before God. Yet, God is willing to speak his will in context. So he does not give us his will for a creational ideal, but gives us his will in this society at this time. But, Scripture's view of this and the way that Paul pushes on it sows the seeds that will actually flower ultimately into our critique of slavery as an institution as a whole. And then finally, perhaps another principle derived from Jesus' example, that people should sometimes be willing to live with a meek and respectful spirit within the actual social realities of their lives, entrusting themselves ultimately to God and overcoming evil with good. All right. Um, let's pray. And then if you have any questions, you can ask Devin later. <laughs> um, Lord, I... <clears throat> Yeah, I do again ask that you would really help us to learn, that you would speak to us through this text. Lord, if there are places where we can um, apply, maybe there are people in here who have, um, who have a, a really difficult situation, maybe at work, where someone who's over them um, is not treating them well. Um, Lord, would you speak your will to them? Uh, somehow give them wisdom in that? Um, Lord, I pray that if there are any in here who have held back in their belief in you because of the sense that the Bible um, condones horrific things, 
that somehow our wrestling this, with this today would open their hearts to a greater trust in your goodness. And um, ultimately, Lord, I pray that you would help us, maybe more than this society did, <laughs> to see our blind spots, to see the ways that maybe our institutions or the ways that we act socially are not actually in keeping with the truth of the gospel and the truth of our equality before you. We pray all that, Lord, in Jesus' name.